1: commitment to the narrative arsenal see out a shitty 2018 with an absolutely shitty 5-1 loss at anfield this is the arsenal vision post-match podcast my name is elliot smith and you can block me on twitter yankee gunner that's right it hasn't exactly been a classic year this is not one you're going to write down and say this was a great year now look you may have personally had a good year i would say that the planet and and society in general may be not doing great and i think it is a credit to the arsenal way the club the club's commitment to to our society and a sense of global community that they saw out 2018 in keeping with the narrative of it being a completely shitty year by getting trounced by Liverpool. Um, this wasn't totally, completely unexpected, I guess. Um, maybe the 5-1 scoreline was unexpected, maybe not. I mean, you could argue maybe it shouldn't have been a 5-1 scoreline we can get to the penalties and things like that. But I look at it this way. Um, we could just dig into this game and complain about all the things You know, we would complain about because they're really pretty readily apparent. What we're going to do is let the conversation be guided by the questions you submitted on Twitter at hashtag Arsenal and do it that way. And um, because it is the holidays, we believe in rotation, uh, even if Emery does not. So Scott is here. You can find him on Twitter o underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah. And Paul's here. You can find him on Twitter at pausing in my pants. Woohoo! Right. Um, we are uh, we are going to just try to do our best addressing the issues, uh, as I said, guided by your questions. But I think we can all agree it was a pretty upsetting win and a pretty upsetting loss. There are no upsetting wins, frankly. Um, what I think we, we do have to do is sort of caveat this. I hate that we always have to caveat it when we have negative conversations because sometimes the football is shit. But, you know, I think you can simultaneously back Emery and believe he deserves time and also have some concerns about things he's doing and you can discuss those things uh, without, you know, meaning that you want him sacked. Now, personally, of course, I think he should be sacked tomorrow at, at the latest. No, I'm kidding. Right? I mean, you can you can discuss these things in a coherent way. So let, let's do this. Uh, so, Paul, I'll give you the layup question. It comes from True Story at True Story underscore number four on Twitter. And it's a complicated question, so just give me a minute to read it out. How shit is Mustafi right now? <laughs>
2: Why would you do that, Elliot? Because really? we had a
1: really spirited back-channel debate, so I, I thought that this would be a good place to start. Um, you were <laughs> I want to out you as being the one who is pro-Mustafi. Um, now, I may have used some rather charged words in the way I described him, which we'll come to, but yeah, how shit is Mustafi right now?
2: Uh, well, he shouldn't have played, right? Um, he's not fit. He's not match fit. He wasn't up to speed on the game. He shouldn't have played. He was he was that guy who volunteered to go over the top. Now, the thing about going over the top in the trenches is they just need you to get shot and die. You don't actually have to do anything useful. You just have to be cattle. Unfortunately, in a football game, you you need to be where you need to be, doing what you need to do. Um, So I don't have a huge appetite for... Like, if people hate Mustafi, fine. If they hate him for his overall performances, which is often the cloak of... Uh, in vulnerability, they they put on themselves. They slaughter a guy who they know they can't, fu- they shouldn't fully slaughter for a particular performance by saying, "Oh no, it's not just this performance it's ever every performance, but actually his recent performances before he got injured um, didn't have too many Mustafis in them. He'd been okay. It's not too surprising against the the uh, one of the world's most devastating attacks. And in fact, instead of having three three of their attackers, they had four. Um, he might look a little stretched. So he got yanked at halftime. Maybe it's because Emery also agrees he's disgustingly terrible and he can't watch another second of him. Or maybe he realized it was a mistake putting him on. But he brought on his other option, which was Koscielny, who's still a shadow of himself, and those were his options. I'm just surprised we didn't play three at the back. If you don't have... Three, Two fully fit centre backs to face up against Liverpool's three, uh, then play three centre backs so they don't have as much co- uh, ground to cover and they can at least cover each other. And it looked like a three man lineup at the back when we picked the lineup, and that made sense to me. So I put it. If I'm going to blame anybody on the Mustafi thing, I'm going to blame Emery. I, I think he hung him out to dry and realized his mistake at halftime. There you go.
1: Yeah, okay. Look, I. I will agree with you that Woo-hoo!
2: he All right, had question. looked
1: better <laughs> in his previous games in a back three. I think, you know, it's hard, right, Paul? Because the argument that, oh, he's just a better center back in a back three, I feel like that argument is sometimes used for anyone who's not really a good center back. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, Licksteiner but, but can I, be a center back in a back three. Well, Licksteiner's not very yeah. good. But, yeah, when he's got an extra person next to him, he's less shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, but,
2: but my argument was more, he's not fit. He hadn't played in 20-something days
1: because
2: mm-hmm. um, he's injured. He was going to be reviewed just before the game, and the tone of it was he wasn't going to make it, or maybe he might. And they played him because the choice was him or Kishelny, who's clearly not up to speed either. Um, so basically, we had one fit centre-back, and even he ain't that fit. He's been out injured. That was Socrates. And it was... I think Emery thought it was Mustafi or nothing, so he went with Mustafi. But I think his mistake was he should have played three because he had two unfit centre backs. So I've heard the Mustafi's better in the back three, but then every, as you you're kind of alluding to, so is every centre back. But that's in this particular game, it would have made pl- sense to play three at the back anyway, given who we're playing. Yeah, and it certainly would have made it if Mustafi wasn't fit, and I say he wasn't fit.
1: Yeah, you know what? Look, I don't disagree with any of that. I think where my issue comes in is what he does for that Firmino goal, um, that's not a fitness issue in my opinion. That is a thing we see a lot from Mustafi, which is I could just shuffle my feet a little more. I could be strong. I could front up to the man. I could get between the ball and the goal and make it a little difficult for this guy and, and let the help support me because Socrates is coming in from his left. The way he goes in, hangs a leg, not even like... Not even with the commitment enough to take the man out and give the foul, but sort of half hangs the leg and then falls to the ground, so he's totally out of the play. Now Socrates doesn't cover himself in glory with the subsequent attempt at to tackle, but I think he's putting the shit. And man is Mustafi...
2: coming down the left, and I think right, but I, he, I think had, he had he totally had a player unfair. dropping in. I, look, Firmino has the ball at his feet; he has him right where he wants him. Mustafius Graham. Now I'm not defending. Uh, Mustafi to the point that he did great on the play but he was kind of fucked any which way he went a a. Must, a- He had him running back towards goal. You would say drop off. Don't challenge him in midfield. So he's running back towards goal. He's got Mano. Firmino is the guy who sets up Mane and Salah. So those are the likely outballs. And all that dangling legs and, and flailing about is Mustafi trying to cut off the passing lanes, thinking the least worst thing he can do is at least slow down Firmino and force him into be the guy who takes the long dis- the the shot from distance while covering all covering Salah and Mane and has him flopping around the place now it wasn't brilliant but if you haven't played for a while you're not you're not fully there in terms of sharpness you know what? and you're just trying to slow the guy down i don't you know it looks terrible but i don't think it is terrible but I, it looks terrible i think
1: you are an extremely intelligent guy And I think because you are extremely intelligent and because you tend to be a little bit defensive of the team and the players, I think you are very good at crafting contrarian arguments that are compelling for why a player deserves to be given some credit. Having said that, I sometimes think those arguments are made purely for contrarian or defensive purposes I, this ain't one of them. No, I, I, swear but, but to God. Paul, I mean, and let's move on because we don't need to spend the whole podcast on yeah. Mustafi. But do you uh, think yeah, it is I fair agree. to say that Mustafi has built up a very large back catalog of hanging legs and diving in and, and, you know, not staying on his feet and not doing the hard yards such that it's not excessive to suggest that this fits with the kind of defending we've seen him do. I mean, I think back to... Yes, except
2: for the hard yard statement, because I think that goes to where we have a big disagreement over him. You think he's... You use terms like lazy and occasionally coward, in other words, to his character. I just think this is the best centre-back he thinks he can be. This is his style. You don't like it, move him on. I don't think it's a failing in his character. This is how he center backs because he wasn't originally a center back. And he gets a lot of success from diving in. And sometimes it makes him look stupid. This is Mustafi. So, oh
1: yeah, well. all right. And, and I guess the last point I would make is, is just that, you know, I mean, I, I don't think he was the only one who was bad in that particular player in the game. I mean, I think Licksteiner. Was a big, big worry, also. So, I mean, you know, look, it is, uh, and the goal.
2: Let's be honest. He's we not about the biggest culprit on the goal. Yeah, well,
1: yeah. Absolutely. We're we're, we're going to come to that too, because th- there are questions about that. I mean, but but let. So, let me ask you this, Scott. I mean, um, you, you know, it it's not look. Mustafi's play aside, and and what I consider to be, you know, me, I'm saying this for me, what I consider to be a lack of the right approach to being a professional central defender in some respects. I mean, there are there are some big worries here just in terms about the tactics for this game. And I, I think that we can certainly agree that the tactics did not put us in a position to be as successful as we now, I don't know how successful we could have been in this game. Again, I want to I wanna be clear about that. But I don't think it put us in a position to succeed. So I'm trying to vamp here because I had a question and I have somehow lost the question. And so I'm go really back sorry. back the bit
2: where you thought I was very ah, here intelligent. We
1: go. Here we go. The, the bit where you thought you really – I mean, to be honest, I, I'm not – can anyone <laughs> prove that that happened? Um, so he, here's a question. This comes from Mark Blondahl, uh, on Twitter, at Mark Blondell. Blondahl? Blondahl? Um, and, Linder. Blinder. Linder. Okay. and he says can you try and justify the tactics of playing with an absurdly high line despite not having a single defender suited for it and stifling our attack with no creative midfielders on the pitch thus only highlighting our defensive issues and of course not rotating our only two attackers so there's a lot in there but let's start with the strategy it did seem like we were playing a fairly high line despite not having defenders suited for it I mean what do you think the tactic was and how do you defend it
3: well, I mean, I think that Arsenal have always played a high line, even going back to the Wenger years. Um, so I think that's just something that's just going to happen. I don't know. <sighs> what, what. I guess you, it's, a, it's a strategy. If you're going to press, you need to be able to keep things compact, have a high line. It didn't work. I don't know if that's necessarily the biggest problem. I mean, it's it's got to be the, the personnel that's there. I don't think necessarily the, the, the high line tactic was the the worst thing that happened in this match for me.
1: Okay. Um. Well. So what was? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, besides you know uh, only having one center back, and even that is probably a you know maybe an average center back to to go along with um, everything else that's going on. Um, Torreira just looked absolutely gassed. Um, I know we've we've talked a lot about how good he's been for Arsenal. But I think this was easily his worst performance that um, he's had since he's joined the team. Um, you could definitely see that the, the number of matches that he's had to play over the last couple of weeks is just really starting to get to him. Uh, Jagat didn't have a, a great game. Neither of them did. And I think when you're playing this style, um, especially with the defense that's behind them, <coughs> excuse me, still getting over my cold here. So I'm, uh, you know, toughing it out, you know.
1: Like many Arsenal players, players. you're playing well beyond the red line, yes. <laughs>
3: yeah, um, so this is a game where you know you needed the control in the midfield And Um, this is something that definitely didn't happen. I would have actually have preferred a, a midfield three here, which you know, it's it's tough to say that that could have worked against Liverpool because they kind of went with a three as well. so we got we definitely got overpowered in this one. So I think that was probably the the biggest mistake. We didn't have uh, any control in front of our very banged up defensive line. And then once they were able to get through our defensive line, It was basically easy picking. So I think that, um, you know, Torreira was dribbled past nine times in this game, which is absolutely crazy. Um, Basically, Liverpool were going through. They were going to be direct. As soon as they got the ball, it was let's attack, break that first line of press. And they were able to get through and Arsenal did nothing to really slow them down or stop them, well, so and I think that so, was the biggest issue. Let's
1: build off it then. I mean, James Morgan at Mullet Rider on Twitter asked, was it a system or personnel problem? I felt we were set up okay, but suffered from defenders wearing clown shoes. I mean, look, we did get the lead in this game, and I think being up 1-0 in some respects validates the approach because it got us into a position where we were in the lead, and... Where, you know, if we could keep it compact, I mean, 1-0 can win you a game. I mean, not, not if you're Arsenal, apparently. But you referenced Torreira. He gets beat on both of their first two goals really badly. We've already discussed Mustafi being whatever it is he is. And Torreira was, you know, a husk of a human. So, like, is it is it a personnel problem? You know, individual errors that Emery can't be held accountable for? I mean, do you think in this case it's less I don't on the think system? We were more... set up right. Well, all right, I'll come to you in a second, Paul. I mean, Scott, I mean... Where where do you allocate the more of the blame in, in personnel problems or system? Well, so to me, I think it's,
3: it, there, there's equal blame to go around. There's just, I, I don't even know like what to say from that game. Like it's still who, who are Arsenal's best 11 players? It doesn't seem that, that he knows. Um, I understand that there's a, a lot of issues going on with the injuries, but still picking from the attackers. I Is it a woby that he he trusts? Ramsey, like he hasn't been able to play very often. I know he's getting ready to, to leave here in January, possibly, or at least sign a a pre contract with someone else. Um, so Ozil's not in the game. yeah, excuse me, my kids are yeah, coming in.
1: that's fine. well, then we we can we can let Paul address pivot. The, yeah. Pivot to Paul. let's pivot to Paul. And, I mean, you seem to feel that the system was definitely wrong.
2: it It made no sense. I mean, well, I want uh, you know I'll go a little heavy on this. There was some look. I've already sense. said
1: you're intelligent, so you must be more you know intelligent enough to to tell Emery how it should have been done. So yeah, it
2: makes you an idiot. Full <laughs> on you. Doesn't, doesn't um, so uh, look, um, we've got into a knife fight here with these guys. It's probably the last team in the league right at this moment you want to get into a knife fight with. Our goal was got by of, us overloading our attack, pushing forward, basically pressing them, which. You know, it would have made sense maybe if we were playing them at home and worked when we were at home. And I think Emery thinks we were closer to Liverpool in terms of our uh, where we're at on our curve than we actually were. I think he, I think he's kidding himself. I mean, the betting on this game must have been 3-1 Liverpool um, before it started. You throw in a couple of, of cheap uh, penalties, that'll give you your, your 5-1. We got what we deserved. Uh, the first goal we didn't deserved to be ahead. It was a great goal. uh, But I mean, they had as good a cross and better from Robertson a lot earlier in uh, compared to the UOB1. There was just nobody on the far post. They had other chances. There was the Salah flick. They were kind of all over us. And this went a little bit against the grain of play, which is fine. I'm not complaining about it. It was a beautiful goal. I was super excited to be 1-0 up. Delighted for Ainsley, Maitland, Niles. Delighted for Iwobi with the ball in. I thought Ramsey will be working it up that wing back and forward was sweet so that was all good but it was at a very heavy heavy price when we wonder why the back line was so exposed and the midfield was so exposed it's because we kept doing this we we'd survived this long got the goal and uh, I mean I don't think sitting back was going to do us huge amounts of favors but if you want to know why we were Uh, strung out on heavens high hitting an all-time low in our midfield and why when Torreira lost the the ball our our centre backs and our backs were wide open it's because we thought we were Liverpool playing at home or something Um, and it's just it wasn't sustainable so we got a nice goal out of it lucky us Uh, everything else was entirely predictable And I don't think you can do that. And I think there's been a huge backlash against the team because we now feel insecure in attack, in midfield, and in defense as a supporter base, based on getting totally reamed at Anfield. I think it's a huge mistake. I think it's first and foremost a tactical mistake. He should have had an honest gut check, look at what he had on the uh, I mean, look at the bench, for God's sake, and then look at what we had for defense, and he should have taken a more conservative approach.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I, and I don't disagree with that. I, You know, the thing that is upsetting is once you have a 1-0 lead, you would like to believe that you don't have to give away two stupid goals immediately. I think that game, you know, look, they were better than us. We're not at their level, and I think we have to look at them and acknowledge that, and that, that is an issue... That we're going to have to discuss on this very podcast is why are they at that level and we aren't? But, you know, giving up two goals in quick succession right after taking the lead totally turns that game on its head. And they're goals that are given up purely by individual errors, starting with Torreira and following on from the defenders. And, you know, and so, a little bit so of bad th- luck, obviously, with, with the one that ricochets off Mustafi from, from um, Licksteiner.
2: Yeah, but I think it's important to look at the Torreira goal. And it's not just an individual error. It's a choice in how we play. We decide to play it out from the back. We play it up the wing, uh, looking to hit them on the counter again. We're all strung out again. I mean, Torreira's an island on his own in the middle. Big gap to the centre-backs. We're all strung out because we think we're about to attack them. So it's a stylistic error, not just an individual error. You know, Mane dropping onto Torreira is entirely their plan. Uh, Terreira's totally on his own. There's a huge gap to where the centre-backs are because w- the centre-backs are split from playing out. Leno's played it out to Socrates who plays it up to line to a, to Awobi. They think they're going to go and do what they just did with Ainsley, Maitland, Niles. So we're s- spread out all over the pitch, which is great unless Liverpool have four attackers. Uh, they spring your guy in midfield and then they ream you and that's what happens. So Uh, It wasn't just individual errors. It was, let's go and get get another goal attacking them. I kind of understand it in the sense that you can't sit back, but we were so aggressive in how we took them on. It ain't too surprising. We went three goals down in the blink of an eye.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess all I was trying to say is, while they were definitely better than us and and could have had more, and we looked very easy to pull apart, the actual goal, because look, scoring goals is very, very hard, as it turns out, even when you're playing a defense as shit as ours. And... Their first goal is individual errors, and their second goal is individual errors, and their third goal is a soft penalty, and their you know which is an error by the way, it's still an error the way Socrates tackles there, and their fourth goal is is the fourth a penalty? Which one is the man? The
2: fourth one? is Socrates, right? Okay, winner. so
1: that's penalty. The fourth is Lichsteiner just not holding his line on a very easy straight long ball out to the wing that should be no danger. And the last one is a penalty that's not a penalty. So, I'm, you know, I mean, again, I totally agree with you, Paul, everything you said. But I'm saying, and yet, despite all that, if you knock out stupid, mindless errors, you don't concede five goals. And maybe you you can't look. If there's one thing we've proven under Emory is you can luck results. We lucked a bunch of results in Project 22. We didn't. We, we were never going to lock this result, but any chance we had when you're 1-0 up goes away when you make those silly errors. Let, let's do this. Yeah,
2: but, uh, but quick point. We didn't play Liverpool at home, and there were a bunch of teams that if they'd had more quality up front would have punished us, and we knew that when we were going through our 22-game run. And this this team is in form at Anfield and had four of the best att- att- attackers in the lineup just waiting for us to spill the ball. And individual Errors come when you put them on pressure, uh, under pressure, and you spread them out all over the pitch and give them no cover.
1: Okay. Uh, Scott, so are you good now to talk and contribute? I'm good be, now, Be yes, part of the podcast. Sir. Awesome. Welcome back. So uh, what would Arson do at OAW Gunner, who has no uh, horse in this race, by the way? Uh, totally totally neutral on this point. Um, how much should the United situation affect our perce- perception of Emery? Specifically, why should he get a pass for spurning top players and the obvious strengths of the squad we have today? And I think, just to sort of clarify that question a little, because this is a decent point. Jose gets sacked. (laughs) Haha, hilarious. Let's laugh at him. And United, what do they do? They start leaning into their strength. They play all their best players and they play more attacking. And admittedly, they played terrible, terrible teams. But... You know, so have we, and we've struggled with some of those teams, and suddenly Pogba's scoring for fun and they're scoring tons of goals. I mean, when you look at what's happened there, when they got rid of a manager who was at war with their star player and Pogba and at war with the style that has traditionally been successful for them, even their caretaker can can coax better performances and results out of them. So, you know, viewed through that lens, is there a lesson there for Emery about what's happening with Ozil and Ramsey and the style we're playing?
3: Possibly. Um, I think the... I'm very much into the, the belief that Arsenal are an attacking team. That's the way they've built this. And I think that they are going to find the best results when they really lean into trying to outscore teams instead of trying to manage games. Especially, you know, once if they get a lead, Arsenal need to keep attacking. They are not a team that can sit back and change their style and look to you know counterattack and defend space and really try to do it that way. Um, their best way of defending games is to push teams back and use the ball and use their skills that they have. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the Emory way. And I, I'm still struggling to understand what the Emory philosophy is. Um, you know, you look at a team. You know, Sarri has come in and he's imprinted his you know philosophy on that team. It's going to be a possession game. It's going to be you know, slow, 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 and then quick when he sees the opening. You and know, he didn't Guardiola. inherit a
1: super team. You know, it's not it's not like he took over City or you know, hell, even United squad. I mean, there are a lot of problems with that Chelsea squad.
2: But it, but it was a ball- mostly balanced squad.
1: Uh,
3: there, there's still some issues there. I, I think in defense that that team is not quite as good defensively, and I think that that's been something that's you know been an issue for them. But they they are very good in midfield. They are very good in attack, and you know he's playing to the strengths using the, the midfield control that they have to defend the ball. Um, but, you know, they're still very vulnerable when the ball is turned over in that, you know, system. So um, I think that that's something that he's done well to do. And I think that, you know, looking at what has Emery done, what what is the philosophy? I mean, it seems like he wants to be a, a possession manager, but he doesn't, he likes to play a, a more pragmatic style of possession. Uh, it's it's yeah, It's really tough. Like he wants to build from the back, but then one arsenal get a lead. He wants to be more of a control space kind of manager. It's it's tough. And I don't think that there's that, you know, real philosophy yet that we can, you know, discern from his style of play. He doesn't know which kind of formation that he wants to do. It's been a lot of mix and match and and that's worked a couple of times where you know you can change things up, but I think it also goes to, you know, the players need to get understanding what is going on, but when you're changing things too much. Everybody is not on the same page. You know, one of the things, at least with under you know, we were going to control the ball so much. And I think we've lost a lot of those attacking things that we were able to practice so much when we get into, you know, the 18 yard box and we do those U-shaped passing. At least people knew, you know, those little give and goes like that's going to be there. That's going to we're going to at least try those a few times. They may not come off, but we're going to try them, you know, until it works. But under Emery, it they've lost a lot of that automaticisms that you know were so good under Vanger. And it doesn't seem that we've replaced it with anything else yet, at least philosophy wise. Well,
1: so it's funny. I, I want to read you then a tweet because I think it, it dovetails nicely with what you just said. This is from Ted Knutson at mixed Nuts who run stats bomb, and it's actually from August twelfth. So this is you know, going back to the very beginning of the season. Um the fear I have is Arsenal lose the funky attacking movement patterns they used to have around the box under Wenger and replace it with nothing. While the defense also takes months to learn how to defend properly and isn't helped by recent recruitment. And so that leads me to uh, uh, one Ozel appreciator at Sage Gunner 47, who raises the question of that tweet and essentially says, you know, Paul, do we have a manager who has foregone an attacking philosophy in favor of a defensive approach that is not suitable for supporting our team. So, you know, I mean, are we seeing now the a little bit of the failings of having a, a relatively conservative coach with a team that is not built for a conservative style? Yes. Oh, there
2: but, but, like, what else would you expect? I don't think our, our squad was anywhere near... As, as balanced or blooded as Chelsea's was. I mean, that's got to be self-evident. They won the league twice in the last four years. They know how to defend even if they don't have the world's greatest defence or the world's greatest defenders. It's just in the air. In the same way people say, well, how can we expect Arsenal to suddenly be able to defend when they haven't been able to defend for years it's almost beyond personnel and whatever it's something in the air it's something in the culture i'm not sure i buy into that but to some degree there's something in it and chelsea are have always been pretty solid um like beyond a decade 15 Fifteen and more years now, they've been solid at the back. So you don't lose all of that, and we don't regain all of that. I don't think Emery has really tried to make us all that defensive. I think he's played three at the back uh, as much so that he could get wing backs forward, because that's the one place we can get some attack going. And like uh, you know, I I, hit, uh, I blame Emery for Liverpool in Anfield. I'm still fully on board the Emery train. Um, I guess I'm just not as surprised as other people are. Uh, I mean, I I know people kind of expected this, but uh, maybe it's like you expect to get beaten up in the alleyway once you leave the bar because they said they're going to beat you up in the alleyway when you leave the bar. You just didn't think it was going to hurt this much. This is pretty much what I expected when we went to Anfield. Okay, yeah, I didn't think it was going to hurt this much. I didn't think it would be quite this gruesome, but... Three goals plus two stupid penalties is probably going to feel a lot like this, and so similarly with Emery, I, I don't. When we all said two steps forward, one step back, I think most people understood that. This is kind of what it's going to feel like. You don't. It's not actually two forward, one back. It'll be seven forward, six back, and during the six back, it's going to feel like utter shit. Um, this isn't his squad. These aren't his players. Even the players we got during the summer, which he may have have blessed aren't his players. The the players coming up will be his players. And he'll, you know, whether it's Everbanega or whoever it is, he's going to bring in, in his next couple of picks, a couple of players who he feels are his DNA. And then, in a sense, that's when the clock starts ticking. But we're in this chaotic phase of neither the old guys' team nor the new guys' team. Um, And it's going to be messy and schlocky. And, yeah, we're probably not going to defend great or attack great. But to me, the style at the moment is certainly use the wings and the wing, the wing backs, the uh, full backs coming forward uh, to hurt your opponent. I, I thought it will be at a great game. I thought it, Ainsley Maitland-Niles had his best game for us in a while, which was maybe not brilliant going both ways, but still good. Uh, we missed Hector. Um and Monreal has been a bit of a shadow of himself this year, and that's really impinging on his style. And, uh, you know, that's going to put a lot of pressure on your defense and on your t- attack if the wings aren't kicking, though, ironically, in this game, they probably were kicking on, so that, you know, that's not his excuse. But he didn't have the three center backs at the back that would give the platform for the two our two wing backs to push forward with a back four in this game, and I think that's what caused him here. So I'm not nearly as despondent, I think, as those who said the words but didn't mean the meanings in terms of where we'd be at right now. I think we're right on track. <laughs> Unfortunately, the the plot line wasn't that high. It was going to be X norm, x steps forward and X steps back. So,
1: Well, okay, but, but then, Scott, if that's the case, and you may not agree that's the case, but how do we... How do we balance that against what the underlying metrics were telling us? I mean, you're the stats guy. All season long, during Project Twenty Two, we were hearing regression, regression. We're going to regress that these statistics are not sustainable, and that that they're showing us that we're not creating enough quality chances, that we are um, uh, allowing too many quality chances. And at the other end, and then you know the the upshot of it is, and you've pointed this out on previous podcasts, that when we switch to that back three against Bournemouth, the Bournemouth result, the the uh, Spurs result, we saw upward movement an improvement in the metrics, but do the underlying metrics from project 22 combined with the way we're playing right now sort of point to the idea that maybe, you know, if, if you just look at those metrics and you don't look at points and I realize it doesn't work that way, the points count, that's what matters. But can you, can you potentially take the view that there, that there is an improvement, that there is not, that the process has not yet yielded any tangible improvement, that That you can really hang your hat on,
3: yeah, so I, I'm I think that Arsenal have actually probably ended up a, a slightly bit worse than you know what they were last year at the same point. Um, you know during project twenty two things were were covered better by the results than the actual you know play was. It wasn't good. There was a lot of you know fortunate kind of things going our way. Arsenal had some very hot finishing. You know, a lot of the the second half goals, you know, looking at the actual splits between the the performances between the first and the second halves. You know, Arsenal didn't actually play that better typically in the second halves, But they scored a ton of goals in the second halves and it made it look a lot better, Um, you know, during the last eh, three or four games. So, you know, the that Tottenham run where they had the back three with Rob Holding, um, things were actually starting to look a little bit better. And I was actually starting to be a little bit more positive. But things really, really turned when the defensive crisis hit and, yeah, you know, contem- has not been able to adjust things again. He, he kind of made it so the, the attack hadn't gotten worse, but it was still, you know, a middling attack. It was, you know, like 1.5 XG per match. So not exactly uh, a great um, you know pr- return but the the defense have gotten better so we we're actually into a positive XG difference per game instead of you know about even but now that you know the defense has gotten worse he hasn't adjusted at all and switched to trying to maximize the attack to make up for a poor defense and I think that's something that is uh, concerning so yeah I know we were ahead of a points last year by one over what we were at the same time but I think we are um, significantly down on XG, especially um, in the goals. I think we were at almost 40 XG last year, and we're at like 33 right now. So it's a a pretty big swing between the two games.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's the issue is BZ at Bozaster on... Uh, Twitter, you know, ask the question then that I think we're going to struggle with. The unbeaten run has lulled us into a false illusion of grandeur. Should we adjust our expectations to be happy with fifth, sixth? If so, how do we measure progress? The emergence of a style, defensive solidity? Before we take a break, Paul, I mean, I think this is the question then. If you, look, you may say I don't care about underlying metrics. The points are the points, and the point tall is so far pretty decent. We should be happy, which is a totally reasonable position. But if you want to take the perspective that, the underlying metrics suggest we haven't settled into a philosophy yet, that Emery is still trying to make heads or tails of an imbalanced squad, that the defensive crisis has cost us, whatever you want to say. But then I think there is a very fair question, Paul, which is what is the the measure of progress? I mean, how do we look at what Emery is trying to achieve and try to quantify it into something where we can say, well, if he does this, this, and this, then I feel a lot better about the job he's doing. Because right now, I, I think it's this whole – You know, change the setup every game and then change it again at halftime and then, you know, luck some results, to be fair, play well in some games and earn some results and then maybe get hammered in a big game every once in a while. Where do you measure success?
2: Uh, So I agree with all of that setup, but I think you got to throw in uh, maybe another perspective, which is you can't, right? You can't measure success. I mean, great if the points tally is where you need it to be, or great if the XG is off the chart. But this is actually the chaotic phase. This is leave Edison in the labs, uh, failing with each uh, light bulb, because y- you don't you don't almost get a light bulb that works. You get light bulbs that fail, fail, fail all the way as you're you're trying to invent the light bulb, and eventually you crack the code. So. Um, You kind of let the guy work. Um, Now, I'm not against critiquing, criticizing, and discussing. It's like the massive fucking meltdown doesn't help anybody. The players he has are the players he has. Love or hate Mustafi or whoever it is, that's who he's stuck with probably till the summer. Um, I would love an upgrade on Mustafi, don't get me wrong. But the man has to work with what he's got. And given that these aren't the players that would suit the system he wants, for I mean, it's pretty easy to see who are his wing backs today. Uh, Hector's injured. We basically got nobody. Um, so if his philosophy was to attack wide, um, and Hector was his best attacking wing back. He just doesn't have the players to do what he wants to do. So how how hard are you going to beat him up? So he's going to try different things. He's going to tinker. He's going to tinker to come up with something that keeps him taking along that's meaningful in terms of style, but it's not his actual end style. But he has to get uh, results. He has to get points. He has to get the fans behind him. So it's a classic no man's land. He's stuck right in the middle where he doesn't want to be in terms of a squad that suited an old style and not having the players to suit to the style he wants to play. Uh, and I think you kind of got to back, uh, sure, discuss it, critique it, but you kind of got to back off from going, uh, do lally on him Cause it, it's going to take a number of windows. And we say that, and then we forget about it. And we buy into the two steps forward, one step back, and then we want to suspend it. But um, I don't think he has the squad, the lineup. It's not that they're all bad players. They just, he doesn't have enough of category A that he needs. And there's not too many a- areas where he is too many, but he has a couple of areas where he is, you know, he's got plenty of midfielders. Ironically, he might still want an ever Um So even in that area, we don't have enough defenders. We don't have enough wide players. Um, but, Even the areas where we do have enough players, and they're actually pretty good players, he doesn't have the balance, the mix, and he maybe still doesn't have his Jorginho that he's looking for. So let the, you know, critique, question, discuss, but Jesus, let the man work.
3: Scott? Well, I mean, I think that's going to be something that, you know, what was the, the plan coming into the season? I think that, you know, we came in with the the expectation that we need to get into the top four. Emery was given the uh, the title as kind of like a, a stopgap, kind of a manager, not necessarily a guy who's going to build us to the next title, but a guy who's going to re-solidify things, get us back into the top four, get us ready. And I think that, you know, this has to be going on to the, the process of what happened when we were hiring the manager slash coach, that, you know... It, He had to have been asked questions about, you know, given the squad that you have, how are you going to maximize it? And it seems that his ideas that he had did not work or were not, you know, were not working out as he expected them to be done. And I think that might be an issue that has to go on the, the committee that hired him because... It doesn't seem like his plan, you know, his plan was to, I guess, play Ozil out wide and I guess use him as that area. And I, I don't know what happened.
2: But, but, but how really could does. we assume that it's a reasonable expectation to get back in the top four ahead of whom? Well, isn't that
3: what our, our goal is? That's our goal. That That's should be the
2: minimum expectations. Not, I mean, your goal is not your minimum. How can you assume that you're going to get ahead of Liverpool, uh, Chelsea, uh, Spurs, who have been cranking for some time and show little weakness, and a Manchester United who'll throw a shitload of money at it. I mean, it, well, it's I mean, a goal, but the, it's not a reason. expectation.
3: When you are, you know, pretty close to the third highest wages in the league, I think that it's pretty highly expected to be close to what your wages are saying you're paying. Um, it's the, it's you know, it, I, I think
2: wages in the league, though.
3: I, I don't know where. I think we're right on par with about Liverpool. Um, you know, so behind. Yeah, sorry, uh, you're
2: right. We, we we spend more on wages than Liverpool, but it's a, it's not a crazy amount more. And we also know that some of those mistakes come from before. If you if you put the correct wages on the players we have, we're probably not ahead of Liverpool. We just happen to have paid uh, fucking Ramsey. Or sorry, owes a shitload of money and probably overpaid well, a little bit on Mick Well, Mkhitaryan. I'm going to stop you
1: for a second because because then then this leads to a, a listener question that I can sneak in, and we're usually so so bad at these that, that this gives me a chance <laughs> to do it. Um, because he he asks Paul. I mean, uh, this comes from Dapper G at Dapper G underscore. Our current problems stem from poor recruitment and selling, not a lack of spending. Discuss. I mean, is is that it? Is it that? Yeah, we pay a lot in wages, but they're going to the wrong places. <laughs> is that w- the problem w- with the squad? The, that we've recruited poorly and we've sold poorly. So we've not been able to refresh the squad in the appropriate way.
3: Yeah, yeah I think
2: I, sold poorly is probably the, the biggest issue. Yep. We, we've done all of it badly, haven't we, <laughs> for the last few years? We, I'm always uh, open to
1: that perspective, as you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the buying and selling, I don't know what we particularly got right in recent times. Is I don't hate uh, a few of the players we recently got. I like Mkhitaryan. Um I love Aubameyang. Uh, I'm not saying we got Mkhitaryan for the right money, but we were, we all know how we got that deal and why we did it. Um, Ozil is probably crazy money, but uh, I don't think that's the the key factor at the moment. Uh, I, I, we're talking about wages because we're assessing whether, based on wages, we should be wherever. Uh, based on our state of chaos, when in terms of transitions of managers. That's where, to me, that's where you look at to say, well, why would we assume we'd be ahead of Spurs this season? i don't think I don't think coming into this season, pundits looked at Emery coming in, and our situation has said, "Oh, yeah, Arsenal looked like they're on track for top four. Nobody outside of Arsenal fan base said we were on track for top four before the season started. And mm-hmm. I don't think many people inside the uh, fan base thought. We should be top four. None none of us on the pod did.
1: Well, let let me challenge Scott this way then. Scott, because I I think this is is the way I would put it, right? I totally agree with you. The goal should be top four. Mm -hmm. I think when you look at this squad, suggesting that this squad is good enough for top four to be the minimum expectation is incorrect. I don't think any manager in the world could guarantee you a top four finish with this squad. That's not to say this squad can't finish top four, but to say it's the minimum expectation. Liverpool's minimum expectation should be top four. Manchester City's minimum expectation should be top two. You know, United, Chelsea, Spurs, I think minimum expectation top four. I think our squad is inferior to all of those squads fairly substantially. And so I'll put it to you with a listener question, Scott. And I know we've, we've blown past taking a break. We're still going to do it. Um, DL or DM? DLM DM at DM mallet 34 asks, should we expect better than we're seeing? We were an imbalanced squad before the injuries. And now unless we sit Oba or Laka, we have no impact subs and squad rotation seems impossible without a serious drop in quality and experience. Is this our level?
3: Mm-hmm. So yes, um, I'll go through this a, a couple different ways. So the first thing is I think in the, the late Vanger years, The way the squad was built with the aging of the team, this season, probably going into last season and this season, we were very much built to this was going to be the the maximum. This was supposed to be the peak years of a lot of our players, and we were going to go for it. And I think that is what's getting us into a lot of trouble. And it's going to be a very tough and long rebuilding process to get us back into the next cycle where things are going to be able to be refreshed. So I think looking at it from that perspective, with the age profile of our team, the amount of wages we're paying that I think the board with the way they built this team had to say that this team has to get into the top four and it's not going to. I, I agree that this squad is probably the the fifth best squad in the league, pretty close to, what uh, you know, Manchester United are at, as between fifth and sixth. Um, I think going into the season, I had, uh, you know, Man City as the number one team, Liverpool as the number two, um, and then uh, Tottenham three, but not far ahead of Chelsea and Arsenal and United in 4-5, and 3-4-5. I agree with that. So yeah, I think that totally totally. Yep. So, I mean, I, I, I totally agree that, you know, Arsenal are not, you know, one of the top four teams, but I think that that had to be the minimum expectations for how much money is being spent, where we are in the age curve of the team. And, you know, I think that had to be the idea of when we were hiring our manager, what we wanted to do. We wanted somebody who could reestablish Champions League football with us, be able to get us back into that competition to where we can start getting that money, because we are going to need a lot of money to refresh and rebuild this squad. Um, Because the people that we have on the team are not going to recoup money on transfer fees when they leave. You know, we're full of people that are, you know, late 20s. And that should yeah, there's just no resale value for that kind of players, unless you know you're you know talking about a, a Suarez and he's going to go win you a league kind of a player. There's just not that kind of players in this team right now, and it's going to be a long process.
1: Yeah, all right, I agree with that let's do this. Um, hey Paul. Yeah. Can you think of any better way to usher in 2019 than increased intimacy with your misses?
2: Oh no, and I can tell you I've. I've had a lifetime of trying to boost this business. I have slipped off more ladies underwear and I haven't really slipped on any in my lifetime, so I really feel I've done my bit. Anyway, Elliot, over to you.
1: Scott, I mean, 2019. If it, if I told you 2019 was going to be the most the most romantic and intimate yet for you and your and your your partner, would you would you not say that that was a goal to to strive for? Yes. We can help with that. We're going to sell you some panties. We're going to sell you some chemises. We're going to sell you some cat suits. We're going to sell you some lingerie. We're going to come back right after this. Okay, it's time to tell you about our friends at EnclosedLingerie.com. That's Enclosed, E-N-C-L-O-S-E-D, Lingerie, L-I-N-G-E-R-I-E, EnclosedLingerie.com. You're going to want to go there right now because they are offering you $35 off any gift of lingerie from their site using checkout code ARSENAL. Enclosed Lingerie is a lingerie of the month gift. Uh, Similar to beer of the month or flower of the month, but every month you are going to receive high-end luxury lingerie for your partner. This is something that you got to do. It enhances the intimacy and the closeness in your relationship. That doesn't happen on its own. It takes time. It takes energy and effort, and this shows real thoughtfulness. Plus, you don't have to wander around a department store sheepishly. You're getting something with a perfect fit guarantee, so size will never be an issue, and you're going to love giving this gift to your partner. I'm married. I have a toddler. Um, I have a great relationship with my wife, but I have to admit that keeping that closeness is something you have to really focus on, especially as time goes by and your family grows. So, this is something you should absolutely do for your loved one. Go to enclosedlingerie.com, enter Arsenal at checkout. You'll get $35 off any enclosed gift, and you're giving something that shows real thoughtfulness, that's unique, that's just for you and your partner. Go there now enclosed com and enter Arsenal at checkout for $35 off your gift. Do it now. Okay, we're back. Uh, Now that we've got you all set for a 2019 filled with love, romance and intimacy, uh, we are going to talk about Stan Kroenke. Uh, Paul. Mm. Hassan at Arsenal Hassan asks, do you think our main problem as a club is Stan Kroenke? If yes or no, why so?
2: Uh, Well, it's fundamental. So If we like our situation, great, that's basically down to Stan. And if we don't, great, that's basically down to Stan. Um, To be fair, though, if you compare them to the Liverpool ownership, there isn't fundamentally a reason. They're doing everything we wish we were doing. And I don't see the difference. I I mean, I see the difference, but there is no difference in the fundamental setup. American owners, they haven't put a shitload of money into the club. Uh, it's basically self-sustaining, they've done everything right, they've used science, they've used latest techniques, they've done all the right things, they're one, of, probably the most exciting team to watch uh, in world football at the moment, that might be a little bit of a stretch. So, hey, it ain't because he's American and because he's a capitalist.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess what I would say just really quickly on this is, let's say that what you want is a sugar daddy owner okay he he's not going to be that right he's not going to nope. be Sheikh Mansour. he's not going to be roman abramovich okay we're never going to have think the,
3: that ship is passed now almost with the the rules that are in place it's really hard to be able to do that
1: yeah uh, all right so so putting that to one side i mean i i still think you can flout the rules but putting that to one side mm-hmm. um because i don't think anybody would say that is the the preferred method of doing it. it is you know to be fair are there any billionaires with clean hands maybe not but Putting that to one side, uh, we're never going to have the revenues of Manchester United, or at least it certainly doesn't appear that it's headed that way. Um, so you look at Liverpool, and you look at the job they've done, and you look at Henry and and FSG, and I don't know that their model has been any different. He's not putting his own money into that club. Anyone that thinks that is incorrect. He is spending the money the club generates, and they've generated it through very intelligent sales, and they've reinvested well. They've spent the money. They've spent more than us gross, but in terms of net. I actually think we've we've spent more than them recently, buying two fifty million, sixty million pound strikers in the span of six months, letting Alexis go for nothing, letting Ozil sign a eight hundred billion dollar contract, you know, letting Ramsey go for nothing. These are the kinds of moves that cost a club. And while I am always willing to criticize Kroenke for not necessarily having any ambitious, any ambition beyond pocketing some money from the club. I mean, he does want the asset to remain valuable, and the asset does not remain valuable if we become a mid-table club. You know, if we turn into Everton, he does not have a valuable asset. So I guess what I would say is I don't foreclose the possibility that we can compete for titles with Stan Kroenke as our owner. I think Stan Kroenke is a net negative, but barely. I don't think he's a net positive, certainly, but I don't think he's any worse than a Henry. I think the blame has to fall on the people who made decisions about these sales and reinvestments and buying i mean stan kronke i I at least believe is not the guy who said let's keep alexis in the last year of his contract and wind up swapping him for a you know a box of rocks let's you know lose aaron ramsey for free i don't i don't think that those are decisions that stan kronke's making i certainly am willing to blame ivan gazitas but let's move on from that um and i've got a question for you Scott, this one comes from at uh, from, uh, Yankee Gunner, at Yankee Gunner on Twitter, and he asks... I hate that guy. <laughs> he is a Wanker. complete dick. Honestly, Absolute best thing you can do, block waste him. Waste
2: of space. Block do him. Do not, Just for block the love him. of God, do not get into a conversation with him. Just block him. He's fucking
1: mental. Just block him. But he asks, um, is Emery paying the price? He's has he has, Sorry. he has he paid the price over the holiday program for his hubris and naivety when it comes to rotation? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, I would say yes, that um, I believe this is true. Um, I think that you can see that in Terrera, especially, um, who looks absolutely knackered. Um, I it, it, Part of it is tough because, you know, we're going through a, the defensive crisis in the back. But maybe some of that could have been, you know, worked a little bit better if we maybe some of those injuries don't happen if rotation happens a little bit better. Um, but I think especially in the midfield, that's going to be the, the that hurts a lot. Um, with the rotation. So yes, I think that he is going to look back and say, I should have done things some differently.
1: Oops. Yeah, I mean, look, you can't look at Torreira's recent performances as anything other than the work of a man who is fatigued. Um, you know, and I think that that, that is self-evident. He played Yang every single minute. He, you know, the the biggest thing that blew my mind is when he took uh, Neni off with a 2-0 lead against Burnley to bring on Terreira when he could have given him the day off. Now, I realize that game got a little hairier and we wound up kind of needing Torreira, but that's a very post-hoc kind of analysis of, of the decision. Uh, Paul, I'm going to throw something over to you that comes from David Ornstein, although he did not specifically write into the podcast to ask. He has broken in exclusive within the last few hours that Aaron Ramsey is holding talks with Bayern Munich, Inter Milan, Juventus, PSG, and Real Madrid before leaving Arsenal as a free agent in the summer. Arsenal have little money to spend in January, so loans more likely with bigger budget next window. Is it incumbent upon Emery now? And we see this must be a talented player. Look at the clubs looking at him. Is it incumbent upon Emery to try to get the most out of Ramsey? Uh,
2: So is that the same question, though? Uh, No. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've
1: botched it. Look, we've clearly botched it. What do you do now?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like he's he's going to do a pre-agreement with a foreign club, but stick around for the next six months, correct? Correct. So, I mean, I, I guess I always thought this was a natural flow. He'd try and use the other players that are in the squad, uh, give them their shot. I mean, he's he's won for kind of hierarchy. He's talked about that. You know, he played Czech first before Lennon So I don't think it's unreasonable that he... He played the players who committed to the club more first to give them their shot, working through the iterations, working through the options. Uh, Ramsey is a very, very useful player, and he will play for you. He's an honest player. Uh, The guy's got character. So I understand why he got used less than maybe he should have until recently. Now we're hitting injuries. We're hitting the busy time of the season. We're hitting the time of season where you can't fuck around. I think we'll use Ramsey plenty uh for two main reasons we won't have a huge number of choices and because uh it'll become clearer and clearer who can do what and who can't and i think we'll get plenty of use out of them and ramsey will apply himself and i think that's all fine and reasonable and we started him against liverpool and the, the the plan was to do what we've done in a number of big games before press their back line see if we can squeeze a goal out of them which we did um, it kind of worked against Liverpool, but we kind of got battered because we were all strung out. So I think we'll see plenty of Ramsey.
1: Yeah, um, Scott, I want to give you you a shot at that because I think it is a pretty big issue.
2: I mean,
3: if if one you know he signs a pre contract with somebody, you know, I, I might even see. Hey, you want to give us ten million and just get him in January. Um. See if that's an option. You know, just to you know make it so it's not something that you have to to deal with. I mean, or, the problem
1: is that's 10 million more that can go into Ramsey's contract, right? Like he wants he wants the lucrative deal, is what it seems like.
3: I, no, and I, and I get it. And that's where I would say, you know, hey, do do you want to leave now and you know go start getting in with your new team? You know, see if that's something that is a possibility. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think that Ramsey is a a great professional. He really, uh, you know, enjoyed his time with the club. And I think that, you know, he's not going to down tools and, you know, basically go on strike or do anything like that to to preserve his move in the summer that he's going to have. Um, So I think that, you know, using him is going to be important. He is a very talented player um i wish you know that they used him more earlier in the season i wish he could have stayed at the club because i absolutely adore ramsey um so i think going forward yeah use him where it makes sense and you know don't worry about that because i think he's a professional and he will do his ass from
1: yeah i mean we'll, we'll find out i i certainly think if we put him out there we'll get the best that he's able to give and you know, I, I think the challenge is if you're Unai Emery and you're a new coach, look, at some level, you have to win now. So you have to do what's best to try to get you to win now. But you also are trying to build for the future. So what do you do? It's an impossible situation. You have this player now who is leaving. And if you lean on him this season, it makes it even harder to build going forward because now you need to find a player who replaces what Ramsey gives you, and there are very few players that do what Ramsey does. He's a very unique player, and that's a very difficult situation for a new coach who's trying to build a new system, although I'm not totally clear what the system is, but that's another issue altogether. Um, So let me ask you this. Here's a question, uh, Paul, about another high-profile player. This one comes from Vikram Singh Negi at Mm. 13 vs Negi 13 and he says, my question is, Shouldn't the manager be held accountable even a little if he has failed to integrate an important player to his plans? Isn't selling Ozil the easy way out, meaning like, you know, as opposed to the hard way out of integrating him? No. No,
2: No, he should not.
1: Be held accountable for failing to integrate Ozil?
2: Absolutely not. I think you have to assume as part of the scenario that a manager will come in, a major player will not fit, there will be a conflict and to force on that manager that he has to do mind games to get somebody uh, to do that which he is not willing or capable or arsed to do is not on the manager unless you think you're hiring somebody with voodoo mind tricks. When Pep came into Barcelona, Pep, the world's greatest ever manager who ever pulled on a pair of underpants, the first thing he did was he dropped his three stars. Why? because they thought they were bigger than his style and his, his, his philosophy. So one of the upsides of dropping somebody like a nozel is you're saying to everybody else in the team, the biggest player is not the guy who's going to pull the strings around here. The style is the style, whatever that is. The approach is the approach. You, what's more, you will all get played on merit. So play your fucking socks off. Iwobi, Maitland-Niles, Genduzi, whatever. The guy who plays and buys into and puts his all behind what we're doing, he's the guy who will play. And even if you're playing with slightly inferior players, what you're doing is you're playing with players whose first thought is, execute the manager's directions, instructions, even when it's going bad. The problem with having a star like Ozil on the field Now, I'm taking the most extreme scenario. Uh, By all means, integrate Ozil. By all means, have him uh, buy into your system. By all means, do everything you can in terms of voodoo mind games to get his buy-in. But you can't give... When you say the manager has to integrate Ozil, you have given Ozil the Neymar power. You've said, uh, no matter what uh, Emery says he he's going to do and what his philosophy is, It only he can only implement it as long as you Ozil are part of that scenario. So actually you Ozil have the power. So you take your choice. Is it Emery who's wearing the big pants or is it Ozil? You can't have both. Now it's up to Ozil to respond. It's on him. That's the way it is.
3: I disagree. Uh, Scott,
1: do you agree with – yeah. So you want to disagree so I don't have to?
3: Yeah. So I think part of it is – so before, before Emery was hired – Ozil was basically chosen by the board, Kroenke, whoever made the final decision, Gazitas, that this was going to be basically the franchise player that everything is going to revolve around. He's going to be the highest played player ever for the club. Um, and I think that going with that, you need to understand that you need to maximize that player to be able to get the best out of him. So I think you can blame Emery to a certain extent that he hasn't gotten the most out of Ozil because that had to be the number one question when he came into the job is this is our best player how are you going to use him to get the most out of him and to get the most out of this squad and I think almost even from the beginning um, he was really kind of pushing him out of his favorite role and you know he was on the wing he wasn't used well and then from there it just it's just gotten worse and i don't know if it's going to be something that can be fixed and now we're in a spot where our best you know our you know our highest paid most prized asset is marginalized he's we're gonna have to take a loss if we want to you know try to get rid of him and we're in a very bad situation where we're basically paying a lot of good money to a player that doesn't fit into the system and there's no good answers going forward
1: yeah <clears throat> I guess I would but, say. It.
2: But how many how many franchise players are there? There's Messi, there's Ronaldo, and there's. Well, I, I think to a certain extent that there's a player like that in every squad that you know, I don't you, think you, so. I don't think, know. think
1: so. No, I, I, I think, I, I, I think I, I, if
2: Rob Salah if Salah wasn't fitting into a
1: star. No, can, can I, I make so. a point? No, I think so. If Guys. you know
2: someone
3: came in with Liverpool. And, you know, they basically said, no, Saul is not good enough. I'm not going to, you know, use him in his preferred position. I think that you might say, what are you doing? Like, this is our number one player, and why are you messing him up? Or, you yeah, know, sorry uh, came into Chelsea Sa- and Zavon's, basically Zavon's marginalized guys. art. Guys,
1: guys you're, you're way off base here, because none of what you're talking about has any relevance. So let me bring it back to relevance, because obviously I know what that is, and neither of you do. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The, the relevant issue is he's a franchise player not because of his skill set, but because of what we paid him. And at the point that you give club-busting wages to one player, you have said, we are staking, we are, you know, whatever, nailing our colors to the mast with this player. Mesut Ozil is now the highest-paid player in the history of the club by a wide margin to the level that he has paid on par with the highest-paid players in all of world football. And because of that, You set yourself in a position where, A, you will be unlikely to ever be able to move him, and he doesn't want to move, by the way. That news has broken that basically you want to loan him in January. No one's going to take him, and he doesn't want to go. So, one, you're unable to move him. And two, you are unable to really add a lot of wages to the squad because you're bumping up against wage restrictions and wage caps to an extent, you know, FFP stuff and things like that, because of what you paid him. Once you make that move... Unless you made that move with a bust, like a Fernando Torres bust, like a guy who just can't play anymore. I think it is incumbent upon you to say, he's very, very talented, he's a tricky player to integrate, but this player is mine and he's now my problem for the next three or four seasons and I have to integrate him because the players that I'm going to have as an alternative to him are not good enough. I mean, whatever you think
2: Absolute fucking rubbish. If, If you put your whole managerial career on the fact that you have to integrate to Ozil and him not integrate to you, you are fucked. Absolutely fucked. He ain't Salah, right? Anybody who's seen Ozil play over the last couple of seasons knows that he has strengths and massive weaknesses that as a team you have to compensate for the games he plays and doesn't play if you can grade him get him to tick that's great but to say that the manager by default has to build his team around ozil is fucking the manager whoever he is i, I pretty much remember you saying in other pods um that uh the day of the 10 who's a free floater maybe those days have gone maybe he's I a player that yeah, yeah So how can you fuck the manager by saying, oh, I'm sorry, somebody else paid him too much money, you have to live with it. Even if you discount Ozil's uh, wages and say, at some stage we're going to have to take a bath on it, we still have more wages to pay than Spurs or probably Liverpool, or at least competitive. So he's not the be-all and the end-all. We've seen what Spurs can do with getting motivated players playing to a particular style. Don't fuck the manager. Don't Look, I would love... I'm not against Ozil. I love the guy. I would love if Emery finds a way. But the way Emery finds a way with Ozil is to give Emery the power and to take it away from Ozil so that Ozil has to adapt to Emery. If Emery adapts to Ozil, he's
1: fucked. I I guess I just don't know if that's true. I'm not saying it's definitely not true. Okay? I'm not saying that I, I think you're just wrong. I think what I am saying is I believe the best version of this Arsenal squad includes Mesut Ozil in the starting sure, eleven. And sure, And I think
2: that... Give Emery all the power, though. And yeah, don't fi- say he has to do anything. No, 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 no. He
1: doesn't have to do anything. Okay, look. He certainly doesn't have to do anything. He's the boss until he isn't. What I'm saying is, it is in his best interest and the club's best interest to find a system that maximizes the substantial talent of Mesut Ozil. And sure. I admit, Mesut is a deeply flawed player, unfortunately. But that's the player we committed to. So... You know, in some ways, I think you could say Cristiano Ronaldo is a deeply flawed player. There are things about Cristiano Ronaldo that could drive you nuts if you were so inclined to look at it that way. Same thing with sure. Eden Hazard. So when
2: you score 50 goals, which well, Ozil doesn't.
1: No, but Ozil did get 19 assists in a season and, you know, probably should have been
2: 30. That's 50 goals. No. That's somebody else scoring 19 goals. I get it. What
1: I'm saying is he leads Europe in chances created every single season that he plays a half-decent amount. And by the Mm -hmm. way, Paul, I I accept that Mesut Ozil is a flawed player. I just said that, so you don't have to hammer it home. I totally accept it. What I'm saying is I think he's substantially talented enough that the best version of this squad still includes him in it and that Emery choosing to... Not just not build a system that way, but to create an untenable situation with this player was probably the wrong way. That getting into a war with Mesados such that he is not look, even look, usable. Look,
2: I think that's overreach, as they say, in, in the legal environment. We don't know the dynamic. And that, so that's you've fair.
1: Got, you I'm just, just going on get, secondhand reports. P-
2: yeah, third hand, I would say. Mm. you got to back the manager. Give him all the power. He's Look, why would we think Emery's a particularly unreasonable guy based on his history? He was very accommodating, overly accommodating because he had to be at PSG.
1: So maybe the so, pendulum swung and he thought, you know what? I learned my lesson. I'm not going to get walked on and I'm going to go punch the biggest kid in the yard in the face. And uh, maybe uh, he on, swung. T-
2: on. We don't maybe, know. Well, you don't know maybe, and I don't know. We don't know. Uh, Yeah, we don't, but his history is a lot longer than that, and his history is one of getting on with players. He hasn't had big fallouts anywhere he's gone. Why don't we just assume that what he needs is the power and control, and Ozil needs to adapt to him? It's as reasonable a supposition as any other fucking supposition.
1: Scott, you have any rejoinder?
3: I, I think it's just that with the way the squad was built, that this was the way that it had to be from the beginning um, it's not the the ideal situation because, yes, ideally the coach comes in and he is the, the main guy in charge. But I think it's because the Ozil decision predated Emery, Emery had to have the mindset coming in that this is my main guy that I need to maximize and I need to figure out a way to make it happen. And I'm not sure that he has done it. And I think that you can blame him for that failure.
1: Okay. Well, <clears throat> then let me ask you this, uh, Scott. Zambian Gunnar – asks, should we prioritize our midfield and attack over our defense, seeing as we are creating very low quality chances? I mean, do we have to pivot to playing Lacazette and Obamayang together and getting Lozel in the squad and leaning I mean, really leaning into our strength?
3: Yes, I agree. That's been my you know kind of philosophy that, you know, maximized what we're good at and what we're good at is or should be is attacking. And go out and try to beat teams four to three if we have to. I, I don't care if we let goals in, if we are scoring more and creating more.
1: Yeah. All right. So, Paul, as a final thought, we got a lot of questions <clears throat> from people about this. And, I, you know, I don't think we, um, we need to get every individual one of them. For example, uh, Dash at Gunner underscore FC 14. What players... Um, from below the top 6 would you like Arsenal to sign I mean are are there players out there that you want us to sign who who are the players we need in January to stay in touch with top 4
2: Sorry can you repeat that Uh
1: who are the players you need us you want us to go get or we need to go get to stay in touch with the top 4 Does, oh, How, no how about this, yeah, throw that one the ca- this guy. Cash Exchange at Cash Exchange 01 says who would you like us to sign this window in order to secure top 4 You want that Um, one over to Scott? I can ask you, you know what, well how about this? Hold hold on to that Scott. So Paul, I'll finish with you with this and we'll say goodbye to you and then let Scott finish on that. Um, And we got a question on this and I'm sorry because I've scrolled past it but I'm losing Paul here in a second so I need to just ask it. Someone, who is very nice, (laughs) basically asked, do you think that we should be switching our priorities to Europa League at this point or do you think top four is still a reasonable possibility?
2: Uh, I think it's bad mind mojo to Swip, switch to Europa League. Um, I, I just don't think that that's how it goes. I think the Premier League is where you test yourself and that's just the way it is. So you got to go for it. you got to hope uh, somebody ahead of us throws a wobbly, but I don't see who that is at the moment. I don't see it being Spurs, sadly, and I don't see it being Chelsea uh i do see it being us though we we seem to have quite a few wobblies on this and united are coming on strong but i don't know what you can do you you got to test your metal uh when you come into next season you got to be fully tested fully tempered and you can only do that by having a real season so uh, i think it is what it is we should be able to compete in two competitions um we should Hopefully get, I mean, we're going to put out a strong team in the Europa League, but we may get a few soft rounds before we play two tough games to get to the, well, two or three tough games, uh, getting us to and through the final. Um, So I don't think we have that decision necessarily yet. It's kind of later on in the season. I think you can do both. You have to do both. They should feed each each other. We just got to be smarter Going back to do, to the rotations, which would be good for us overall.
1: Okay, Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! Woohoo! Indeed. Um, Paul will be back on in a future podcast. I assume. I assume. I don't see why he wouldn't be. But
2: you know. I'm listening in. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: <laughs> okay, Scott. We'll finish with you with just a couple quick questions. The first one was from Cash Exchange, as you heard. Um, who do we need to sign to finish top four?
3: Um. So well. <laughs> It doesn't have to be the, the
1: specific person, by the way. It can be, you know, what you think is a minimum requirement for a January window to finish top four.
3: Well, I mean, I think that that's just going to depend on some of the other teams in front of us falling behind. Um, so I think that Arsenal definitely need a center back, should probably look to see if there's a, a left back that they can get. Um, I think those are the two bare minimums just to be able to, to get through the season because, uh, we're really hurting in those positions. Um if there is a, a good attacking player out there available, you know, I guess that's you know, something to go grab always because um you know we could use a, a wide forward. But I think that at a minimum we need to get a center back in um, and probably a left full back as well.
1: I, I think you saw so clearly by the way, when we played Liverpool, <clears throat> the difference Van Dyke made obviously, but also Sala, Mane, Firmino, they all dribbled past us a million times. We don't have anybody who beats a man in the final third and gets into the box and creates havoc. And I, I think it is such a huge miss because it requires us to really come up with creative ways to pass our way through. We've pretty much settled on, you know, kick it into the wings and try to cut it back into the box from there. You know, play the overlaps, which is fine. That works. But I I, I actually think for our attack to function, someone, you know, one of the wide forward positions has to be a pacey, tricky, dribbly kind of player. I mean, don't, don't you think that's a big miss for us?
3: Yeah, cause, so that's a, a good plan B for a lot of times. You know, you can try to break teams down with your your good passing as your plan A, but sometimes that doesn't work, and you just need somebody who can go beat a guy and cause havoc. Because you know, beating a guy ruins the offensive or the defensive, the defensive line. That's yep. you mm-hmm. Yeah, you beat you've beaten somebody, you've thrown in chaos, and now everybody has to recover, and that's when you get mistakes and people get open, and that's why a dribbly wide forward is you know such an important part of today's game.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And by the way, of course, we need a center back. I mean, that that, that goes without saying. Um, but we need a center back. We need a left back. We probably need another central midfielder. I mean, how do you feel about the Benega links?
3: Uh, it's another one that's so hard because the age profile just isn't right for a team that needs a rebuild. It's another stopgap kind of signing where we already, you know, did Lichtsteiner with that. We did Socrates like that. And it's... I mean, yeah, he's a, a decent player, but you know, what is he going to be on a three-year contract? Is he going to really be, you know, part of the the next team that you want? I mean, if we're able to get him on a you know one-year deal, fine, whatever, he's fine, he's good, but it's a uh, Arsenal have a a longer-term problem that they need to fix, and I don't think that he is going to be a player that uh, solves that.
1: Yeah, I I, I guess I just look at it and I say whatever nominal improvement you would make there, first of all, it makes no sense if Ramsey is staying till the end of the season. Um, And it it makes further little sense when you consider how desperately we need to to change the age profile of the squad. So I'm going to finish with this because there was an interesting debate going on on Twitter about it, and most of the Twitter debates get really tiresome really quickly. But for some reason, I always have time for these. I think they're interesting. Um, Is Aaron Ramsey leaving as an Arsenal legend?
3: I think so. Um, he's been with the club ten years. You know, he basically came up through the the academy. You know, he picked us over United, which was awesome, especially during that time where you know Arsenal were you know trying to build stars instead of you know buy them. So I think that was you know something that was really nice to see. Um, he was probably the most important player on um, some of those you know early mid um, you know 2000s teams. So from that probably 2012 to 2017, so to last year, he was probably our our most important player um, along with Ozil and uh, Alexis. You know, one, two, um, or, you know, basically was the winning goal on two FA Cup winning teams, won a third FA Cup with the team. So, yeah, I think that he's a a club legend.
1: Yeah, I think he is. I mean, look, the problem is that the 1998 to 2004 period under Wenger, really set the bar so high for what a legend is. Um, you know, when you win titles, when you make Champions League finals, that was 20, 2005. But, you know, when you when you win FA Cups, when you go unbeaten, and you have players like Pires, Henri, Bergkamp, Ian Wright at the very beginning, um, you know, Adams and Keown and uh, uh, Vieira and Petit and Gilberto, and yeah, I can name them all. The point is, like, yeah. just about everybody from that era is a legend, you know, certainly all the starting players. And you know, as a result, it's very hard to measure because then you say, well, is the only measure that you know, the team has to win something. Well, you're going to go through periods as a club where you don't win anything. And does that mean a player can't be a legend if they're part of the club during that period? And to, you know, Cesc Fabregas, for me, is a legend. He was the best midfielder in the Premier League from the entire time he played at Arsenal. Um, he didn't win anything, but he dragged a motley crew to the Champions League final and kept us in the top four when we had you, know, you and me playing. I think Aaron Ramsey, if anyone's going to get legend status from the last decade, I think he deserves it. Came as a teenager, you know, broke his leg, came back from that, scored two cup winning finals, as you meant, uh, cup winning, cup final winning goals. I think the, the other thing for me, uh, legend status, look, this is not a metric. It's not a statistic. I think to be a legend. It's a feeling, Yeah, it's a feeling. So p- two of the factors for me are length of service, right? Did they stay long enough to be a legend? Like Alexis and Ozil, for example, neither of them are going to be a legend for me. Uh, you know, even though they were involved in, in restoring us to, to glory in terms of the trophy drought and, you know, winning FA Cups. Because length of service, particular with Alexis. But also, did they feel part of the club? Did they feel like a fabric of the club? Or did they feel like someone who was making a stop along the way at the club? You know, when when retires, I think he will remember himself as a Real Madrid player. You know what I mean? I think that's how he'll want to be remembered. Exactly. I when think, Aaron yeah, Ramsey he's gonna, retires... You know, he's going to
3: be a Germany player. He's going to be a Real Madrid. Yeah, <laughs> right. he's, he's not going to be Arsenal as his number one thing.
1: Right. When Aaron Ramsey retires... So it's funny. In American sports, you have things called the Hall of Fame where um after they retire, players get inducted into it and it, it serves as a shrine of the best players of all time. And when they go into the Hall of Fame, if they played for multiple teams, they can pick which shirt they want to go in it. You know what I mean? Which which jersey? Um, you know, and, and for example, if Mesut Ozil went into a Hall of Fame, I think he'd pick a Real Madrid shirt. I think Aaron Ramsey would pick an Arsenal shirt. And I believe with every fiber of my being that Cesc Fabregas would pick an Arsenal shirt too. Um, and that's part of how you determine if someone's a club legend, if they hold the club dear in that special way. And that can be debated. You, you know, unlike stats, that can be argued. But for me, uh, Aaron Ramsey goes as a legend, uh, I think. You know, and, and it's a close one. I don't think he's been... Absolutely, scintillatingly spectacular. But I think he meets a lot of the, um, a lot of the intangible qualities. So
3: yeah, I think he had a lot of high highs with the team, and you know, especially you know, you had the emotional part of you know coming back from that horrible injury, you know, all the stuff that he had to to go through to do that, and then to actually come through and actually fulfill the promise, because that was one of the things. You know, he was one of the the Project Youth teams. You know, the, uh, you know, the Brit you know the British Corps that he was going to be. And he was probably the one that probably came closest to fulfilling that potential. And, you know, I think that has to to go somewhere too. That yeah. We put all these things on these young players and it is so hard for them. But, and I think he actually did come through and reach the highs that we expected of him. And that's so nice to see.
1: The The only thing I would say, if you wanted to say there has to be a criteria beyond just being a good player for your team for a long time, You could make the argument he's not because I think it would be fair to say to be a legend at the club, that player has to, for some period, whether it's a season or a couple of seasons, be the best at his position in the league or um, counted among the absolute best. And you know, for me, Cesc Fabregas was the best central midfielder in England for many years. Um, Yeah, I don't know that Aaron Ramsey was ever counted among the best at any position for any length of time apart from maybe a six-month purple patch right so he's very very good but he never ascended quite to the pinnacle and that that could be the counter argument but for me i'll give it to him you know you're not gonna build a statue not every legend is someone you build a statue of out front of the stadium you know um just someone who gets a warm hearty welcome when they return and i think he certainly would in any event we've waffled on plenty long on this one it's fulham that should be easy right scott
3: i hope so attack just, what do yeah, you think? Just go out and attack. Oh, I, I'm hoping for like a 4-2 for Arsenal.
1: Yeah, that's our version of a big win instead of clean sheet. But yeah, I agree with you. All right, well, Scott's on Twitter at uh, oh underscore that underscore crab. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. My name's Ellie Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Thanks for submitting your questions. We really appreciate it. It's uh, you know It kind of guides the conversation when we could have just moaned and groaned about a game where, let's face it, nothing really went right for us on the day beyond Ainsley Mintland niles goal. So... We'll be back with more uh, after the Fulham game. We'll have some Patreon content coming out in January. That's going to be uh, We're going to try some new things with that, so definitely keep an eye on that. Definitely buy some lingerie. We really, really appreciate it. Clive sends his best and wishes you a happy new year. Tim sends his best and wishes you a happy new year. I send my best and wish you a very happy, healthy, prosperous new year, and to Arsenal as well. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Fulham nil.